Before we begin today's episode, I would like to correct an error I made in Van Halen Part 1. In that episode, I mistakenly referred to the band's producer as Ted Templeton, when in fact, his name is Ted Templeman. Please excuse the error, and enjoy today's show. In 1978, Jace Obrecht was an editor for Guitar Player magazine. He recalls a week after being hired, a review copy of Van Halen's first album arrived at the magazine. Our chief editor, Don Men, put the album on his turntable, Obrecht recalled, and we all stood around and listened to Eruption. Is that a keyboard or guitar? Don asked as Eddie began tapping the frets. At that time, the technique was so rare, we weren't even sure it was played on a Stratocaster. The guitar on the record sounded unlike any Fender we'd ever heard. Shortly after hearing the record, Obrecht would interview Eddie Van Halen in what Eddie stated was his first major interview. I'm your host, Forrest Kelly, and this is 10 Minutes About Van Halen Part 2. In that now-famous interview, Eddie revealed that it took the band only three weeks to record their self-titled debut album. The album released on February 10, 1978, and featured hits such as Jamie's Crying, Ain't Talking About Love, and the earth-shattering guitar solo that made guitar players scratch their heads in confusion, Eruption. Eddie had just turned 23 two weeks prior to the album's release. While the Van Halen brothers, Eddie and Alex, along with bassist Michael Anthony, aspired to be a heavy rock band in the vein of Black Sabbath or Aerosmith, lead singer David Lee Roth, who derived just as much inspiration from the Beach Boys and Motown as he did from Black Sabbath, hoped for something different. Their debut found space for both ends. Van Halen was a rock band, but unlike their contemporaries, they boldly included pop songs like Ice Cream Man on their record. It was a trend that would continue throughout Roth's tenure with the band. Another core element of the band's sound would reveal itself with the record's first track, Running With The Devil. On it, Michael Anthony's now iconic high tenor backs David Lee Roth's low crooning. Regarding Anthony's voice, Roth would decades later reflect, What we have at our fingertips is arguably one of the greatest high tenor voices ever. In our tiny little corner of the universe, that voice is as identifiable as the high voice in Earth, Wind & Fire and as identifiable as the high voice in The Beach Boys. The album would peak at number 19 on the charts, selling a staggering 10 million copies. Following the successful release of their debut album, Van Halen went on tour, opening for Black Sabbath on their Never Say Die tour. It would be the last time Van Halen opened for another band. Van Halen's stage presence was high-flying, fresh, and electrically energetic. They were a tough act for the aging, drug-riddled Dark Princes of Rock to follow. Tony Iommi, longtime guitarist of Black Sabbath, in an interview last year commented on their tour with the young band. They were very good, they were very energetic. You've got David Lee Roth there jumping up in the air and doing somersaults, and the way they'd run around the stage, of course, it was the complete opposite to us. We stood there when we went on. But they were just a very, very excellent band. You knew then that they were going to make it. There's no two ways about it. They just got something that nobody else was doing at that time. Iomi echoed the sentiment of Ozzy Osbourne, who said at the time, The crowds are going wild. Van Halen is so good, they ought to be headlining the tour. Their first album was a good start, 
But to continue to excel required the up-and-coming band to return to the recording booth less than a week after finishing their first tour. They owed the studio another record, and in 1979, the group released their second album, appropriately titled Van Halen 2. Recorded at Sunset Studios, the album released on March 23rd, just over a year after their debut album. Van Halen 2 was the successful sophomore record they hoped for, despite the record label questioning its potential. By May, the album was certified platinum with over a million copies sold. It has since gone platinum an additional four times. Keeping with the tone set on their first album, Van Halen 2 was propelled by hit songs like Somebody Get Me a Doctor, Bottoms Up, a cover of You're No Good, and their first top 20 hit single, Dance the Night Away, a pop song that boasted the band's wide range and ability to write hit songs outside of heavy rock. The band embarked on their second world tour just two days after Van Halen 2's release, performing in the United States, Europe, and Japan. Between 1980 and 1982, Van Halen continued to release a new record every year. Women and Children First in 1980, Fair Warning in 1981, and Diver Down the following year. All three went multi-platinum and peaked in the top 10 of the Billboard charts. Touring for Van Halen, like any notable band or artist, was unsurprisingly vital to their financial and musical success. Performing at various venues around the world, Van Halen would naturally have written contracts with each of them. Within every contract, the band had added a seemingly obscure demand. Absolutely no brown M&Ms backstage. While many wrote this off as simply rock star behavior, in a 2012 interview, David Lee Roth explained the seemingly absurd stipulation. Van Halen was the first to take 850 par lamp lights, huge lights, around the country. At the time, it was the biggest production ever. These places were built in the 50s, the 60s, and 70s, and they didn't even have the doorways or loading docks to accommodate a super forward-thinking Van Halen production. The promoters didn't frequently read the contract rider, and we would have structural issues because there wasn't the proper electricity, load-bearing stress, etc. So in the middle of a huge contract rider, I had them place a clause. There will be no brown M&Ms in the backstage area or the promoter will forfeit the show at full price. If I came backstage and I saw brown M&Ms on the catering table, then I guarantee the promoter had not read the contract rider, and we would have to do a serious line check. Their 1982 album, Diver Down, consisted of 12 songs. Five of those were covers. Most notable were the covers of Where Have All the Good Times Gone, Pretty Woman, and a cover of the Motown hit Dancing in the Streets, the latter of which Eddie took exception to. I hated that song. I never wanted to do it. Ted and Roth thought I was out of control on Fair Warning, and the label wanted a single, so they dug up all these cover tunes to try to get a hit. What angered Eddie the most about the song was that producer Ted Templeman had decided to take a guitar riff he overheard Eddie working on and transplant it onto the cover tune. The album was unlike any of their previous work. It's not heavy metal, and it's not The Temptations, Roth put it. It's something in between. The fourth cover on the record was Big Bad Bill, a tune written in 1924 and previously recorded by vaudeville singer Margaret Young, Peggy Lee, and country star Merle Haggard. Its inclusion on the record was hardly Eddie's idea. It was Dave's idea to do Big Bad Bill. 
He played it to us and we started laughing ourselves silly and going, this is bad, let's do it. Dave suggested, hey, we can get your old man to play the clarinet. We said, sure. We looked like an old 30s or 40s session. My father hadn't played in a long time because he had lost his left hand middle finger about 10 years ago. He was nervous and we told him, Jan, just have a good time. We make mistakes. That's what makes it real. While Eddie wasn't fond of the song, he cherished that his father was able to perform with them. Diver Down would prove to be a contentious album. Eddie and producer Ted Templeman had consistently butted heads on how to make a record. Templeman was perfectly content redoing already proven hits. Eddie, however, said, I would rather bomb with my own music than make it with other people's music. He wanted more freedom, and in his quest for it, he found an ally in Don Landy, the recording engineer who had recorded all five of the band's albums. In 1983, Ed, with the help of Landy, designed and constructed a studio at his Los Angeles home. It gave him the control he needed, a space to focus more on writing, and a place at home where he could record high-quality demos without frustrating his wife of two years, Valerie Bertinelli. I have a tape of me playing in the living room at 5am, and you can hear Valerie come in and yell that she's heard enough of that song. Eddie and Landy named the new studio 5150, after the California Welfare Code for involuntary confinement of a mentally unstable individual. Van Halen began work on their next record at 5150, a decision Templeman wasn't happy with. On January 9th, 1984, Van Halen released their sixth studio album, aptly titled 1984. If Diver Down was David Lee Roth's version of an album, 1984 was Eddie's. Unlike the former, which was rushed by studio executives, littered with covers, and quickly recorded in less than a week, 1984 took nearly a year to record and all nine tracks were original pieces. When we started work on 1984, I wanted to show Ted that we could make a great record without any cover tunes and do it our way. The album was a resounding success. In March, only two months after release, the album had gone platinum, selling over a million copies. By October, the album had sold over four million records. The album peaked at number two on the Billboard 200 charts, propelled by their first and only chart-topping single, Jump, which itself sold half a million copies. Despite its overwhelming commercial success, several people were less than thrilled about its inclusion on the album. Templeman and Roth weren't fond of the song, specifically its iconic synth riff that Eddie had been perfecting for several years. According to Eddie, Roth was adamantly opposed to him playing the keyboard, to which Eddie replied, If I want to play a tuba or Bavarian cheese whistle, I'll do it. In a 2020 interview, Templeman reflected on that song. I wasn't wild about the keyboard trend. I was wrong because it was a number one hit, but I don't even listen to it. If there was any fear that Eddie had given up his iconic guitar for the keyboard, it was quickly alleviated by the song immediately following Jump, the top 20 chart hit, Panama. In total, 1984 sold over 10 million copies, an accomplishment matched only by their debut album. In January of 1985, David Lee Roth released a four-song solo EP titled Crazy From The Heat. He, with the help of Ted Templeman, had recorded it over four days in 1984. Roth said he did it to occupy his time while the band was recuperating after coming off the 1984 tour. 
Like the album Diver Down, the EP consisted of covers of popular hits. Easy Street, Coconut Grove, a medley of Just a Gigolo and I Ain't Got Nobody, and lastly a cover of the Beach Boys' California Girls. They were songs that didn't fit the confines of Van Halen. I have a statement I felt I couldn't make enough of in Van Halen, so I had to step out for four songs, Roth would say. Going on David Letterman, Roth refuted any rumors of a band breakup and optimistically guessed Van Halen may get back into the recording studio that January in hopes of releasing their seventh album that year. Crazy from the Heat was a success for Roth, selling over a million copies in just a few months. His cover of California Girls, which boasted the background vocals of Christopher Cross and the Beach Boys' own Carl Wilson, was wildly successful, reaching number three on the Hot 100 charts, higher than any Van Halen song had or would reach, with the notable exception of Jump. If the EP did anything for Van Halen, it heightened already frayed tensions between the band and Roth. Crazy from the Heat was ultimately the culmination of the two parties' opposing styles and vision for the band. Eddie and Roth had butted heads on Diver Down, with Eddie opposing the direction Roth took the album. Eddie built 5150 to wrangle some control back, and in so doing, Roth disagreed with some of the choices made on 1984, specifically the inclusions of Jump and I'll Wait on the record. By the end of 1985, David Lee Roth would depart the band he helped build. According to Eddie, Roth left Van Halen to become a movie star, hoping to make a film to accompany Crazy from the Heat. With Roth gone, Van Halen was in need of a new frontman. Thank you for listening. For 10 minutes about, I've been your host, Forrest Kelly, and that's still not all I've got to say about Van Halen. Be on the lookout for the final part of the Van Halen series, Van Hagar. <laughs>